we're going to spend um, some time just uh, grappling with another question about prayer. And uh, we've been going through our vision over this past year or so, and we've stopped for a bit on um, praying for revival because that's our heart as a church, to pray for revival. I go, uh, I've got invited to places and they, they often just say, come and bring what's on your heart and they get really fed up because what's on my heart is to see revival. And I keep saying, we need as God's church to be getting on our knees and praying for revival. I'm sometimes disappointed that lots of churches don't have that as the main thing that they're doing is praying for revival, praying for the lost to be saved. That's why we're here to see the lost saved. And we want to see more than we can imagine. That's why we pray for revival, because only God can do it. Imagine praying for things that we could do. What's the point of that? We're praying for the things that only God can do as he moves in power. So the question I was grappling with this week, and here's the highlights for, to share with you, is can our prayers change God's heart? And the scriptures, I want to read some scriptures uh, to you and to balance these up. James, if we could have Malachi 3 verse 6, the first part of that verse. I, the Lord, do not change. It's fairly clear. Okay. Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I've received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot change it. Sorry, I went one more verse than I gave you. James 1 verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And if we were to stop there and just ponder on those verses, you would go home thinking, well, that's clear enough for me. God doesn't change. He says it himself. Let's read a few more verses, shall we? Hosea 11, verse 8. God says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Oh, Okay, I'll hold both of those together. Now the long reading. Genesis 18, 20... <laughs> Just testing your eyesight. I'm getting new glasses next week. I went to the opticians and he said, read the thing on the back and I read it all the way down. It was brilliant. He said, that's amazing. He said, read this book. And I said, what book? <laughs> That's why I have my verses written down now for next week. Watch next week as I have my Bible here again. If what he says is true, the optician. Anyway, I digress. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached the Lord and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? 
Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not judge all the earth? Do, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous people is less than 50? Will you destroy a whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke. What if only 40 are found there, he said. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Do you get the picture? I, the Lord, do not change, but Abraham comes again and again and again and pleads with God. And God says, okay, okay, okay. One last reading. Exodus 32. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And I could have found loads more scriptures. The question I want to ask today is, how do we reconcile those two things? I, the Lord, do not change. My heart is changed within me, says the Lord. My passions are aroused. There are many verses in the Bible that describe God as an unchanging, changeless. And if Edward were here, he would have used the word immutability of God. <laughs> we miss him, don't we? The long words. Karen knows what that word means. Immutability. He does not change. And we sing that truth. Great is your faithfulness. You never change. You never fail, O oh God. And it's great. There's truths to sing the older version there is no shadow of turning with thee thou changest not thy compassions they fail not as thou hast been thou forever wilt be faithful one we've just sung it so unchanging and we balance these verses with the truth clearly shown in scripture that God does respond he does relent. He does revive. He does change in response 
to the cries of his people. That's why we need never give up. We must never give up. The reason why Christians give up prayer is because they get disappointed with God. We must never give up. Because we don't see the big picture. We don't see all that God is doing. But he calls us to keep on, keep on, keep on. And the truth is that we need both, don't we? We need that truth of a dependable God we can trust totally, who does not change, yet is attentive to us and welcomes us into relationship and whose heart and mind can be moved, can be changed. Over the centuries, theologians and philosophers have grappled with these questions and many others. How do we reconcile clearly predestination with clearly free will that we find in the scriptures? If God's will is fixed, why bother to pray anyway? Have you ever asked that question? We know that prayer is that relationship with God. It's the currency of a relationship with God. And the closer we walk with God, the closer we hear his heart. We want to pray with his heart and his mind. But some people find that really difficult. Philosopher Immanuel Kant said, it's an absurd and presumptuous delusion to think that our prayers might in any way affect God's plans. How miserable is that? I mean, I didn't know him personally, but sounds quite miserable. And on the wings of Christian theology, Calvinism, in an extreme with its emphasis on God's absolute sovereignty and predestination, says that the importance of prayer is the effect that it has on us, not on God. And there is truth in that, isn't there? That prayer affects us. But it's more than that. Even John Calvin himself never had so much doubts about prayer's effectiveness, urged his congregations to pray without ceasing. He never said, oh, well, it's all predestined, don't pray. I love it. C.H. Spurgeon, blessed be his name, once was asked how he balanced his views on predestination with his obvious evangelistic zeal and how he prayed fervently for the lost to be saved. Don't you believe that God will just save the elect? And he said, yes. I pray God save the elect and then elect some more. Save the elect and then elect some more. I like him. <laughs> we can get so rigid sometimes in our theology that we cannot allow God even to expand our minds. God can do anything. And throughout the scriptures we're grateful that God reveals himself as an personal being who delights in personal interaction with us. A God, yes, who reveals himself in general revelation. Yes, the stars and the galaxies, they just cry out, God is great. It's there for all to see. You watch these amazing programs, whether it's Life on Earth or the, the Cosmos, and they're all eulogizing about this amazing place. And you say, yes, who made it? He's even bigger and more glorious. But he's also revealed himself in special revelation. He gives us his name. He reveals his character. He reveals that he is love. He also reveals what he stands against, which is sin. Evil in this world. 
He reveals what is good for us and what is bad for us. And supremely, God reveals himself in Christ, the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. That's why we start Alpha with who is Jesus. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. He is the one who reveals him. He is the exact representation of his being. Jesus, the fullness of God in bodily form, the Bible says. He is the portrait of God's. And it's Jesus who reveals that we have a Father in heaven. We would not know that without Jesus. He reveals that we can call God Abba, Father. And he reveals that he sends his Holy Spirit on all who will ask. Yet even Jesus, when you read how he teaches the disciples to pray, acknowledges the Father's omniscience, all-knowing nature. He says, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So there's no need to pray. No, he doesn't say that. He says, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So this is how you should pray. And when you pray, and so he taught us the disciples' prayer. Jesus didn't see his Father's all-knowing nature as a disincentive to prayer, but as an incentive. The key thing is we don't have to impress God to get his attention. Imagine if you had to impress God to get his attention, to be good enough to get his attention, to be super spiritual. That's why Jesus stands against those things, the long-windedness of the Pharisees who are just doing it for show. Jesus teaches us that God the Father loves us and loves to hear us. And he cares about us. And he is moved when we pray. And when we come with our heart. Not just a religious thing. It doesn't move him at all. Religion doesn't move God at all. In fact, I think he despises it. Because it's not what he intended. But he is moved by the heart cry of his people. That's what we pray, isn't it? Your kingdom come, your will be done. We're moving heaven to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, heaven to earth. What's done in heaven, done on earth. Jack Zalil, another philosopher, kind of the opposite of Immanuel Kant, prayer holds together the shattered fragments of creation. We're praying your kingdom come, your will be done. And clearly, the Bible shows us a God who is deeply affected by his beloved. Deeply affected by what goes on on this earth that he made. Whether positively or negatively, God delights in those who love him. He delights in saving people. He delights when people open up their lives to him. And he works all things for the good of those who love him. And that's truth. That's what he says. And we stand on it by faith. He works all things for the good of those who love him. Even when we cannot see it. Because it's not over yet. But yes, he is hurt by disobedience, by evil. And there will be judgment. And his judgment is delayed only by his grace and compassion. 
but he gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. Church history, the histories of revival, which is what we're basing this series on in prayer, is our cry for revival, are littered with God's response to prayer. All revivals, all moves of God, in the amazing things that he has done all throughout the world, have been responded to God's people when they have prayed, when they have sought the Lord and cried out, normally when things get really desperate, because that's when God's people pray with a heart cry. We know it's true. You think about your prayers when you are desperate and how different they are when everything's going all right. There is a level of intensity. There is a level of faith. There is a level of desperation that changes. You think of all the scriptures that point that. Jonah. Love the story of Jonah. If you've not read it recently, read it again. And Jonah knew God's heart. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. If I go to Nineveh, they'll repent and you'll say they're forgiven. So I won't go. And he runs away from God. God has to teach him a lesson. Big fish and all that. You read the story. Nineveh repented. That's the key thing. Nineveh repented. There was a people who just knew they drifted far away from God. They repented and God's mercy flowed. And even Jesus says that Nineveh will stand in judgment over the towns and places where Jesus' miracles were performed because they would not repent. We're praying for our nation. The Spirit of God would revive the church and awaken the people of this land because we're lost without him. And sometimes we don't see the need. The veneer of respectability just sort of covers things. Yet you watch the news this week and you just see it is all rotten underneath. It needs God to move in power again in this nation. And he calls on his church to come and cry and seek him. So how do we reconcile this changeless God in scripture with a God who obviously can be changed? Well, the key is this. God is unchanging in his character, in his attributes, and in his word. Doesn't change. Remains. He doesn't change his mind on what is right and what is good and what is holy. His love and his mercy and his holiness and his righteousness and his grace and compassion, they never change. And we can never argue that God will actually change what he said in this book. We say, oh, we've moved on from that. We'll, we'll change some of the stuff. He doesn't. But his heart is changed. His compassion is aroused. And we would not want it any other way. Would you want a distant God so aloof that he's just set everything that and nothing could be changed? I'd be lost. Because he came looking for me when I had no interest in him. And he saved me. And we need to never get over that fact. That God saved you and he saved me by dying for us on the cross. We have a God who cares, who longs to save. And in his sovereignty allows himself to be moved 
I actually believe that God, that makes God bigger, not smaller. He allows himself to be moved by us. And Jesus himself laid down all those omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, became a human being, filled with the spirit, but a human being so that he might make a way for us. Jesus made that relationship available for us through the cross, through the resurrection. And so we've been given this relationship that's developed in prayer. If that has grown dim, we're encouraging you over these weeks to start again in prayer. Find once again that privilege of just finding space and time to meet with God. To know the amazing fact that God listens to you, wants to hear what's on your heart, engages with you. Sometimes we don't know what to pray, but the Bible encourages that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. We have a God who loves partnership. It's there in himself. The Trinity is relationship. Mutual submission, Father to the Son, Son to the Father, Holy Spirit to the Father, Holy Spirit to the Son. They love each other. They're in relationship. God in three persons, beyond our understanding sometimes, but the relationship is there and partnership is there. And we're made in his image. And he looks for partnership with us. Partnership with his church. Chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of Him who brought us out of darkness into His wonderful light. And so He commissions us as His church as you go, make disciples in all the world. There's a call in the scriptures in this area of prayer for childlike faith recommended by Jesus children have this amazing capacity to trust God to believe God to receive God it's as we get older and cleverer that we start making things more complicated remember Albert Einstein saying that he didn't understand prayer at all well yeah I'm with him as well there are I mean, if he doesn't understand prayer, Stephen Hawkins, brilliant mind, isn't he? Approves the notion that if, if, if there is a God, he must be outside of time, unconfined by time and space, clearly recognizing that there is a different dimension. It's clear there is a different, where's Jesus now? It's a different dimension. You can't take a space rocket to see him. It's in a different dimension. All those who have gone before us in Christ, they're in a different dimension. And those two will be joined together when Jesus comes again, heaven and earth, together. I read this week, amazing things, when you made your mind boggle. Time slows down when a person approaches the speed of light so that an astronaut launched at high speed into space would return measurably younger than his twin brother who's left on earth. Isn't that amazing? You know, I reckon that's going to be marketed at some point, isn't it? <laughs> All of you like rubbish. 
space travel. Come, come back to your twin brother and say, you're looking old. What's happened to you? How does timelessness affect God? C.S. Lewis grappled with this. He toyed with the idea that you could pray at midday for something that happened at 10 in the morning because God is outside of time. And I just think these are distractions. They are distractions. Makes your mind boggle but stops you praying. They are amazing things but simply coming before God as your heavenly father who loves you. Why make it so complicated? Some of us, we've made it so complicated we don't trust him. Because we can't figure it out in our mind. We'll never, if Stephen Hawkins and Albert Einstein and people like that can't figure it out, yet children can figure it out. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. When Job posed his anguished questions to God, I love it how the Lord responds, gently responds with a basic science lesson with Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Where were you when I called the stars and the galaxies into being? Where were you when I told the sun to get up this morning? God is so much bigger. In an intriguing aside, God tells Job's friends, if you've read the story, again, get into the scripture. It's an amazing story of Job. And his friends, they know, they think they've got it all sorted. Cause and effect. This is why bad things happen to Job. And God tells Job's friends, who reckon they've got it all sorted out, that he will deal with them not according to their folly, but according to Job's prayers for them. He will deal with them not according to their folly, but Job's prayers for them. I wonder if that caused them to be friends again. In prayer, we have this gift of asking an omnipotent, timeless God. And we share our heart with him for our time, our space. And Jesus invites us to find some time, get away with him, walk with him in life, do life with him. Prayer is a lifestyle, not as a lifeline. We've talked about that. Don't make prayer the last resort. Make it the first resource of your life. Every day, ask him for his help and strength. Sometimes we only believe God answers prayer if it's an amazing, miraculous thing. God hasn't answered my prayers this week because the amazing, miraculous thing hasn't happened. But when I've asked for strength every day, I've been strengthened. When I've asked him to get me through the day, he has got me through the day. When he's helped me to cope, when I felt I couldn't cope, he has answered my prayer. He is always at work, always at work. And every day... We pray for the sick, for the troubled, for the persecuted. Every day we pray for revival, for the lost to be saved. Every day we pray, God, will you use me today, wherever I am? He will answer. He is moved by those things.
And the Bible tells us that he prays for us. Even Jesus, when he faced death, if you read through John 17, he prays for you and for me. As he's facing death, Jesus prays for you and for me, those who will believe afterwards through the message. He prays for us. No, we'll probably never figure out the precise role prayer plays in the events of our lives or our history, but we do know that it plays a crucial role. And when we do find that time tomorrow just to be quiet with the Lord, our Savior, we come and share our heart with him, know that he is moved by that. And he understands. And he is at work. Because he loves you. Bottom line. Loves you. And has proved it. Part of our vision is to pray for revival. We must never get up, give up. Never give up. Be the hallmark of this church. Has to be not just in our generation, but in the generations to come, that we cry out to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we've come this morning to worship you. We've sung you our songs. Sung of our love for you sung of your greatness, and it is true. We've poured out our hearts to you. We've lifted one another to you, our friends, the concerns of our heart. We've prayed for brothers and sisters who are going out to serve you across the seas this week. Lord, all of it we bring. We bring ourselves and bring this cry that you've placed on our heart we want to see so much more. And we cannot do it on our own. So we cry out to you. Lord, help us to walk with you this week. To be used by you this week. To enter that amazing privilege of a relationship with you this week. Help us to move on this week. Where we've got stuck... Help us to move on, break out of that rut. Holy Spirit, fill us again. Fill your church and be glorified. May your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a final.